Did anybody feel the cool breeze coming through the window at all during sitting? Lovely. It's only the, I think it's the first time we've had the window open. I'd like to talk a little bit tonight <coughs> about the Dhammapada, which is one of the core uh, Buddhist texts. We're more often probably talking about the suttas. So I think most of you are more familiar with the suttas. Who, who has not heard of the Dhammapada at all? Yeah, great. So, from your practice, the teachings you've heard from me and others, what's your current understanding of Dhamma or Dharma? Same word, Dhamma, D-H-A-M-M-A, is the Pali of the more used Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, which is the Sanskrit. What does this word mean? Teaching. Teaching. Good. Teaching. Anybody else? Path. In Asian countries, you're not often going to hear Buddhism being referred to. You're going to be hearing the Dharma or the Dhamma. Someone is practicing or studying the Dhamma or walking the Dhamma path. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Anything else? The truth of the way things are. The truth of the way things are. Sounds dogmatic, but yes, this is one of the definitions that uh, that are appropriate. The way things are referring to how things are unfolding outside of our illusory view or our perceptions of them. So we could say that there's something more true or real. Pada uh, can be translated as foot or place or also path, track. The English word uh, sometimes uh, used to refer to um, Verse, uh, foot of verse. So Dhammapada might be the truth verses or the Dhamma verses or teachings of the Dhamma or teachings of the truth, sayings of the Dharma. Okay? This is really a core, core 
Buddhist text and in a sense the teachings aren't different from that which you've already heard essentially the Dhammapada consists of short, very direct, very explicit um, statements, not unlike uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, if you're familiar with that text at all. Almost a reworking of a lot of the teachings that do show up in other places in the suttas. We could say that the Dhammapada has taken uh, the heart of the teachings, extracted them from the narrative or the story quality of the suttas and just given given them to us without all the embellishment, right? The Dhammapada would have been, uh, it would have served a highly functional or pragmatic purpose in early times because they would have been easy to memorize, (coughs) recite, and it would have been a good way to share the teachings with others. So let's say, this is a small group tonight, right? It's about half the size as it normally is. Even just in this short discussion together, uh, I'll give you a few um, excerpts from the Dhammapada, and you might even remember them when you leave. Right? And so we can imagine that if we were sitting around together uh, 24, 25, 2600 years ago having a discussion about the Buddha's teachings, that it would be very useful for you to be able to remember something and then go back to your village or your apartment <laughs> and share them with your roommate. Right? And if you've heard the Suttas, they can be very long, right? So, have you heard of the three baskets that make up the Pali Canon? Some of you have, okay? So we have three baskets. Here they are, the, my glasses case, the tipper, and the singing bowl. So, in the Pali Canon, we have three baskets or uh, groups of information that provide the teachings and the techniques that help us learn meditation, and in one case, a set of uh, codes that instruct us on how to live skillfully in a way that uh, is engineered almost to help us protect the mind and heart. That's the vinya, okay, so that's one basket. Originally, uh, a set of codes for the monastics to follow, right? So there were probably a few of these codes or rules. I don't like the word rule, but rules. Uh, it's just that if they're rules, we don't follow them. If they're codes, we, we tend to think it's okay. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll do it. Maybe we'll try it. And then what happened is uh, the community started to grow and monks would be found doing things uh, that 
the Buddha perceived to be obstructing their own learning and growth on the path or was causing difficulties for other people or there was some tension or strife within the Sangha, etc. And so he kept adding uh, rules. So he was, like, he was learning as he went. You know, oh, that situation didn't work out so well because, you know, whatever. Someone drank the wine that the person in the village made and they were unskillful in their speech and they hurt somebody's feelings. There was poor judgment. Okay. No intoxicants that cloud the mind, right? But, and, then, and then the lists grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. So we have the vinya, which we don't talk about very much, really. We have the five precepts. Um, you guys, uh, Adam and Jesse, will probably take the precepts on retreat uh, tomorrow. I read them every morning when I sit, a way of just remembering and recalling uh, the intentions uh, for ethical practice. But for the most part, we don't really talk about the vinya. Second basket is the suttas, which you're all starting to get familiar with through the teachings. Really, when you have access to a teacher or you're downloading a talk, reading a book, you're coming in direct contact probably with the, with the suttas. Okay? And then over here, uh, we have the Abhidhamma. And the Abhidhamma also is a reconfiguration, in a sense, <laughs> of the suttas, okay? It's a, it's a yeah, I, we could say it's a, a very scholastic uh, reorganization uh, schematically of the teachings that are found in the suttas, uh, often in numerical form, right? So really categorizing uh, the teachings in a way that are easy to, uh, maybe not easy to understand, but because of the way they're grouped, um, an attempt to uh, organize our study of core teachings. So remember that this basket here, the middle basket, is the suttas. And in the, in the suttas, we have uh, five nikayas. And uh, nikaya is collection. And at some point after the first four nikayas were... Collated, probably what happened is somebody or a group of people got together, uh, and, and if you've seen the these collections, they're enormous books, right? So a lot of time and energy had been invested in supposedly memorizing the teachings, sharing them with one another, and then eventually starting to write them down. And at some point. Somebody or a group of people, most likely, decided, okay, we're not going to edit or add anything to the Nakayas. They're done. No more. We've had enough. Okay? We have a full collection of the Buddha's teachings. Game over. And everybody agreed. No more additions, no more changes. And then... At some point, somebody else had a good idea or a teaching must have been missing or there's a way of uh, articulating it uh, in a form that was new that they thought might be helpful. So we got the fifth Nikaya, okay, the Kadaka Nikaya. Kadaka is small. 
so a small volume, um, again, of teachings that had already really been illustrated in, uh, in the suttas. You might remember a couple months ago, we did a little bit of work with the Udanas. The Udanas are in the Kadaka Nikaya also. So the reason for all of this overview is just to say that that's where the Dhammapada lives. Okay? It's in the suttas, so it's, we could say it's a scriptural, uh, it's a core teaching. This, this is, these are the scriptures or words of the Buddha. And within that particular category, uh, this uh, came probably later, after the first four uh, Nikayas were well established. Okay? As a classic uh, religious or spiritual text, we see here... Uh, the heart of the Buddhist teachings as those that emphasize the individual in the mind as the only reliable source of purification or awakening or peace rather than um, a higher other or something outside of ourselves. Right? The Dhammapada makes it very clear that I have a responsibility to take um, if I am to be happier, healthier, kinder to myself, kinder to other people, you have uh, a particular responsibility for your own well-being, just in the same way. Right? Going to acquire support from teachers, support from the practice, going to sit down and talk to friends who you trust and are knowledgeable, and ultimately... You know, we are responsible to do this work, right? So we see this in the first two uh, verses of the, of the Dhammapada. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows. As the wagon wheel follows the hoof of an ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like an ever departing shadow. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows. Right? As the wagon wheel follows the hoof of an ox. So we have to learn something about how our mind works, right? In order to move toward this happiness that might follow us like a departing shadow. As I was working on putting these notes together for tonight... I was about halfway through my planning and I was talking to a, uh, a mentee who, uh, on Skype who lives in Los Angeles and uh, I shared with you, I think it was last week or the week, I think it was last week, I was 
sharing with you a little bit about some of the people that I'm working with. And uh, this was another conversation with one of those women. And uh, <coughs> this is the woman who I had expressed had been waking up in the morning and having some thoughts of getting older and, and being scared of being alone. And she was having some health issues. And she told me just in this past week while I was working on um, on this material that I'm sharing with you now, uh, she said, you know, I've been quite close to death on, on several occasions. And I'm, I'm actually not afraid. Like in hindsight, um, I've come right up against it and I actually found it to be a relief. You know, and as she was reflecting on her current health challenges, she said, but I don't want to die if I don't have to. You know, I want to... You know, I want to continue to have the opportunity to uh, to engage this life. But she said, but I don't want to do it with a corrupted mind. It's the same language that's in this translation that I'm using of the Dhammapada. You know, she was saying, I want to live a, a pure life. You know, when I, when I do die, I want to die with a purified mind as a result of living a pure life, living a good life. And, you know, really taking responsibility, uh, you know, for her life and for her path. And she's just really clear about that. I don't, and I think what she was saying is, I know I have to do this for myself. I think, I think that was the subtext. That's what I was getting from her. We could say that there's two goals expressed in the Dhammapada. One is um, liberation uh, or awakening in this lifetime or a future lifetime. Right? I like the idea of awakening in this lifetime. <laughs> right? You might have heard that, uh, you know, under certain conditions, we'll awaken in seven lifetimes, you know. Relative our lifespan, that's like 500 years. I'm, I'm, I'm personally hoping that I already had six lifetimes and I was a good person, and now's my chance. Um, but there's, it, but, but actually, in the same sutta, the, the, Buddha, the Buddha says, okay, well, maybe six years, you know, maybe five years, maybe seven days. At the end, he says, maybe seven days if you really apply yourself. So maybe by next Thursday, if you really apply yourself. So there's two, we could say there's two goals expressed in the Dhammapada. One is liberation or freedom in, in this lifetime or in a future lifetime. Um, or attaining deep happiness, deep peace in this lifetime or a future, hap- or a future lifetime. Okay? And there's two qualities corresponding to these two possible goals. The first is virya, okay? Um, I talked about this a little bit in the past couple of weeks as a spiritual ardency, right? We talked about engagement, and we define that uh, as ardency. So this is an effort or determination marked by persistence and continuity. The other half, of course, once we start to talk about persistence and continuity and effort, we have to talk about uh, acceptance and gentleness and kindness, right? Or we end up pushing too hard, right? This is what we've been exploring in the past couple of weeks. 
and I think you'll you'll see this as I go through some of this material. The uh, Dhammapada really is advocating for uh, virya, really a really bold effort to wake up. In fact, as I was exploring passages from the Dhammapada with a different uh, group on Tuesday, uh, one of the people in the group at the end, he said, you know, you know, when we were having some time for questions, he said, you know, uh, the way you've been teaching over the past year feels very much like you're giving people a lot of choice and, you know, it's very inviting. And uh, he said, but that language that you read tonight, that feels very strong. You know, I feel like somebody's telling me, um, you know, step it up. And in a sense, actually, that, that we get that sometimes from the Dhammapada, the very, very strong language. So the two qualities corresponding to the two goals, again, the first is virya, spiritual ardency or effort or determination, and the second, uh, peace and ease. Do you see how these can balance each other, right? So I'd like to look at uh, another passage, verses 292 and 293, that I think do a good job of referring to the the second goal, liberation. And so we might ask, and we often do ask and talk about what is this idea of liberation that the, the Buddhist teachings are, are often talking about. This is a spiritual freedom that requires along the way and ends with a radical, radical, deep personal change both in how we perceive or experience life and how we act or respond to life circumstances. This is what we mean by liberation. Verse 292 and 293. The toxins multiply for the insolent and negligent Those who forget to uh, learn about how the mind works. Who reject what they should do and do instead what they should not. Continue to replicate behaviors or ways of living that are habitual. What I call outdated. Right? You know what I mean? You have outdated behavior patterns probably, right? We talked about some at dinner tonight, some outdated behavior patterns. But the toxins come to an end for those who are mindful and alert, who are constantly well engaged with mindfulness of body, who don't resort to what they should not do, conditioning, but persist in doing what they should do. The toxins multiply. What might the toxins be? What are the toxins? What are the toxins that are multiplying if this whole doctrine is pointing toward the role of understanding and transforming the mind as the vehicle for liberation or spiritual freedom? What are the toxins? 
You're all always right when you answer my questions, by the way. <laughs> what are the toxins? Anger, selfishness, selfishness fear. greed, mm-hmm. fear. See, everybody's always right. What else? Deception. Deception, not seeing clearly. Craving. Crazy. Craving. Craving. <laughs> and crazy. Or craving. Craving. <laughs> craving and crazy. <laughs> craving that makes you crazy. Okay? The toxins multiply for the insolent and negligent who reject what they should do and do instead what they should not. But the toxins come to an end for those who are mindful and alert, who are constantly well engaged with mindfulness of the body, who don't resort to what they should do, who don't resort to what they should not do, excuse me, but persist in doing what they should do. Why do we have a tendency to uh, resort to to do what we shouldn't do? Good. So the question is, why do we have the tendency to do uh, what we should not do? The Buddha refers to this as habitual behavior or conditioning, and this is connected to a core uh, a core misunderstanding in a separate self. So there's a uh, There's a limitation in how we see. There's a limitation. We don't quite yet know how the mind operates, right? And we feel in our life, in our mind, in our body, we feel any variation of dukkha. We feel some uh, pain. We feel some longing for things to be different in the future. We feel some grief for the past. Uh, any variation of mental strife, and we're trying to correct that, we're trying to be content and peaceful and happy, but because we don't quite understand how, how, how the mind works, we're not always going about it in the right ways. Sometimes we are, and sometimes we're not. Often we're not. Right? So it's this not doing things according to what would actually help us be happy um, that is the doing things that we shouldn't be doing. Is that helpful? There's another translation of uh, these two verses by uh, Tan Jeff, Tanasaro Bhikkhu, where he doesn't use the word uh, toxins. He uses uh, effluence, E-F-F-L-U-E-N-T-S. Liquid waste or sewage (laughs) discharged into a river. Interesting translation. Strong language, right? So this waste or sewage is akin to the answers you provided. These are our thoughts that are causing us, uh, certain kinds of thoughts that are causing us more suffering. These are the words that we're using that inflict some uh, discord or pain in our relationships or within ourselves. And these are the actions that we're sometimes mistakenly doing. I mean, we don't want to cause other people harm. You know, and yet every now and again, you know, sometimes, you know, something we do or say is, uh, does not create harmony. 
liquid waste or sewage discharged into the river. So what's the river in this example? This is just our environment. The people and that we share our lives with and the environments that we, that we live within, that we come in and out of. So what conditions bring uh, these toxins to an end? <clears throat> Remember in this passage, uh, we, it's said that the toxins come to an end for those who are mindful and alert, who are constantly well engaged with mindfulness of the body. Okay? So this is the practice of focusing on the body at all times, simply as phenomena in and of itself, to develop meditative absorption, right? to stabilize and focus the mind. This is mindfulness of breathing. This is awareness of the four postures of the body, lying down, seated, standing, walking. Right? You all know this. Alertness to all the actions of the body, analysis of the body into its 32 parts, Analysis of it into its four properties, earth, water, fire, and wind. And contemplation of the body's inevitable decomposition in after death. This is the list of practices given to us in the Satipatthana Sutta on mindfulness of body. This is not the first place in the Buddhist teachings or the only place where when asked how to awaken, the Buddha says explicitly, mindfulness of body. Mindfulness of body. This is the foundation of the practice. This is where it begins. And there are times in the suttas where the Buddha seems to indicate that's a full path. Right? That's a full path. So, what is the result? What is the result of working in this way? Well, since these toxins are the mental forces that keep us bound in cycles of suffering, samsara, their removal is our way out and their absence is liberation itself. We can understand liberation as the absence of those toxins, of those thoughts, those patterns of behavior, those things we do, those things we say that keep us continually bound in this inevitable frustration and angst and wanting, which leads to wanting the opposite, more peace, more calm, more contentment, less stress, less anxiety. So let's talk a little bit about the form and style also of the Dhammapada. You may have heard this uh, in, the, in the two passages that I read, um, there's a use of contrasting uh, statements that present dichotomies, right? And the Buddha did this a lot. Let's look at what happens if we do this, and let's look at what happens if we do this, right? Toxins multiply under certain conditions, okay? Uh, Toxins are removed or alleviated under these conditions. Very, very simple in a way, right? And he's doing this all the time. Very, very simple and direct language. In the passage that we just looked at, we're told that wise action is the basis 
for progress along the path, right? Not doing things we shouldn't be doing in doing things that we should be doing. It's, it's, it's almost like a parent trying to teach a six-year-old. Really, actually, right? Our habitual conditioning is actually very much like a small child that doesn't know what to do. He keeps making the same mistake over and over and over again, right? So this simple and direct language is not just a stylistic or literary technique, but, but rather really illustrates how critical simple distinctions are in early Buddhist thought. Right? We, can, we can see this or understand this in two ways. As evidence of what's required for progress along the path, A, in B, also the culmination of the path, right? This is a path that progresses by seeing things clearly and simply. This is how we develop, right? Something we do helps us, so we continue. We don't challenge this kind of discourse, right? I'm, not, I'm assuming that most people agree with this. But the simplicity actually is almost lost on us. I talked about this a little bit in the meditation structure, and I often do. Be really, really simple. Learn to experience and see things as simple as possible. Something we do helps us, we continue. Something else we do hinders us, we discontinue it. But we don't always. We really don't. This is where Varya comes in. We've recognized through our practice that we often get stuck in certain situations. And we even see simply not doing it, not saying that, not reacting, is going to make a difference. And then two days later, we did it again. (laughs) So there's a combination of mindfulness in Virya. And I think also just empathy and compassion really wanting to make a difference. And I think that there's a connection. I mean, this is, I don't know if I can source this in the suttas or not, but I, I think that there's a real relationship between varia and empathy and compassion. Can you see how that might be possible? So again, something we do helps us, we continue. Something else we do hinders us, we discontinue. A different verse uh, in the Dhammapada. Wisdom arises from spiritual practice. Without practice it decays. That's it. Wisdom arises from spiritual practice. Without practice it decays. We know this. If you're meditating semi-regularly or regularly or daily, and then you take a couple weeks off, what happens? Does, do you notice a shift in your mind? Right? I have these conversations with people all the time. You know, all the time. You know, a couple, you know, they're out of practice a little bit, and they, and they call, and they say, okay, it happened again. Okay. I really want to regain my morning meditation practice. This simple seeing also is evidence 
of uh, culmination or insight or wisdom, right? It's also the fruit of the path. Deep understanding of how the mind works is pragmatic. When we hear the Dharma well, it's not embellished in fancy or philosophy, is it? You can, right? I mean, you've been hearing the Dharma for a while. When it really hits home, wasn't it crisp and clear? It was just, it was actually easy to digest, wasn't it? Now, that's because of the way it was presented, but that's also because your mind was awake and alert and able to hear it. It's a, it's, there's two factors coming together. But the Dharma, the Dharma is simple. While the unliberated mind may feel complex and confused at times or often, the liberated mind views the difference between suffering and peace as a mere shift in perspective. Insight is this perceptual change. Do you see that? Insight is this perceptual change. We're grappling with the ideas when we read the theory and the psychology and the philosophy and we have our discussions about it. But when the mind just wakes up and sees clearly, very simple, very direct, it's just, ah. you know. And when we see really clearly, we don't really need confirmation. I've said that before, right? I mean, you might go to a friend or a teacher and check in with them, but there's a way in which, and there's a time... Uh, moments in practice where we just know, knowing. We just know. We know something for what it is beyond our perception or prior (coughs) illusion or distorted concept (coughs) of it. So what else can we distill from Uh, this verse, uh, these two verses about the toxins, verses 292 and 293. First, we want to read these uh, as instructions, right? Uh, Not merely as uh, explanations or teachings, but as instructions. The Dhammapada very much is, is what we might call a call to action. Did you get a sense of that in some of the language, even in the few passages I I read tonight? It's very much a call to action. Um, Like other great spiritual texts, I think of the Bhagavad Gita. Um, You know, we're we're going to battle, in a sense. Uh, Ultimately with ourselves, ultimately with our own own mind. And we get a hit of this... um, the warriorship quality, almost, that is prevalent in a lot of spiritual literature. Right? It's really here in the Dhammapada. Which itself is representative, I think, of virya, a spiritual effort or ardency. In verse 168 in the Dhamma, it's written, rouse yourself. You can put an exclamation after that. Rouse yourself. Don't be negligent. You can put an exclamation after that. Live the Dharma. 
I mean, even just saying that, it's like, you know, live the Dharma, right? Don't not. Right? That's the, the energy of the Dhammapada. Don't not. You know? Read this now. Because if you read this when you're 78 and don't have a lot of time left, there might be regret. That's what this is saying. Rouse yourself. Take this passage and put it on your alarm clock next to the snooze button (laughs) when you're trying to uh, re-establish your morning meditation practice. For real. It's funny, but it's, it's almost a genuine invitation. Like, where does this go? Not on the refrigerator, because... You need this when the alarm clock goes off. You're not even getting to the refrigerator if you keep hitting snooze. Rouse yourself. Don't be negligent. Live the Dharma. So on this path, we are going to battle against Mara. Right? We're going to battle against Mara. I don't often use the word evil, but it is in the, in the teachings. And, and really, uh, in a sense, when we start to get into um, the battle with Mara, uh, we might say we're getting into a battle uh, with evil if we stick with, uh, you know, religious lexicon, right? With evil, with, with factors that don't help, with factors that... Uh, support the, the continuation of suffering uh, with all the things that get in the way of uh, peace and contentment and well-being. So evil is referring to the unskillful actions brought about by ignorance, brought about by the hindrances, uh, all symbolized by Mara. Greed, hatred, delusion, ill will, etc., etc., Mara is derived of the root verb mir, M-R, which is literally to die. Uh, Gil Fronsdale, whose uh, translation I used for the passage uh, regarding the toxins, uh, has a way of explaining the association of Mara and uh, death. The first, as we progress along the path, we are less susceptible to the deadening forces of Mara, like greed, hatred, and delusion. Right? And second, liberated persons are free from future rebirths. We are free of suffering, fundamentally. And hence, we're free from the pain of dying. This makes sense? If we're not born, which is the result of the end of samsara, we can't, there is no dying. If we're not born, if there's not a rebirth, uh, so we can, re- we can read that as a rebirth into another life, or if we're not um, creating the conditions to be born again into suffering, There's nothing to die. There's no one to die. I want to end with the same 
passage 292 and 293 and just uh, and I won't say anything more I'll just offer it as a as a final reflection and um, as if we were uh, sitting around many, many hundreds or thousands of years ago without um, without me being able to send this to you later in an email and you were going to go home um, to your apartment in the village of Jamaica Plain or wherever and um, try to support your fellow roommates in the good word of the of the Buddha, you might remember some of it. The toxins multiply for the insolent and negligent who reject what they should do and do instead what they should not. But the toxins come to an end for those who are mindful and alert who are constantly well engaged with mindfulness of the body, who do not resort to what they should not do, but persist in doing what they should do.